ready. So I got it recording, I hope. Let's see. I like to have this chair. It's cool to stand up at times, but if everybody else is sitting, I feel awkward standing over y'all. It just doesn't feel right. Alrighty. So last week, I believe, we ended up with a great discussion talking about the fig tree um, and what that symbolized and what Jesus had done and the significance of it. And it looks like as we came to the end of chapter 11 of Mark, some things started happening. The uh, Sadducees wanted to challenge Jesus' authority. You know, I believe prior to this and all of our other previous chapters, what group do we deal with the most or most commonly? No, I'm talking prior, prior to this moment. The Pharisees, exactly. Now we've ventured into another realm because we do know that the Pharisees primarily control the synagogue. So now... Jesus has entered the city in a triumphal entry. Some things are happening. He's caught some people's attention. Uh, I believe he, yeah, he claims the temple. So he got some people's attention out the, out the door. And I, wish, I really wish I could have talked the last one, man. The cleansing of the temple is one of my favorite parts because I, what I like to call, I love Buck Jesus. <laughs> I mean, just walks in there, starts flipping over the tables, and causing a little disturbance, trying to get people's attention. That Jesus really excites me at times. You know, he's not docile. He's being really forthright and really to the point about what he's doing in that point. And in the midst of doing all the stuff he did, he, he caught the attention of the group of people we call the, the Sadducees. Within the Sadducees group hierarchy, what are the titles we usually hear in the scriptures? High priest. Who else? There's the Sanhedrin, right? It's the council. Mm -hmm. We hear about the Sanhedrin. Your chief priest is another word for high priest. Um, what's the other one? Scribes. The scribes are basically. What is lawyer a good word for them? Because I mean, they're like scholars of the law, technically. I'm not sure if that would be equivalent to an MDiv or a T-Men or if we're looking at a JD in this situation here. But these people basically would study the law. They would write it down again. We do know in, in, in Israel back in the day, one thing they used to do is they would definitely write down the law and stuff over and over again. That's why we have the Dead Sea Scrolls from a group of people called the Essenes. But here we're dealing with the Sadducees. Sadducees are primarily centered in the temple. What goes on in the temple is their business. So if you have Jesus coming into the temple and he starts flipping over the table, won't let people buy anything, you know, that's the equivalent of somebody walking into a mall right now down in Cool Springs and tells people, nope, you can't buy anything. Stop, don't go in that store. Leave Hot Topic alone. You know, stuff like that. Because the Temple Mount area was pretty, pretty big. And so depending on where he was at, he could stir up something. So it seems like he was where they would probably buy their animals or whatnot in that area. He flipped over the money changers and stuff like that, we know. Now, is that how the Sadducees made their money? All their money, you think? Those exchanges? Money, money, money. <laughs> they could 
possibly be? I mean, think about it. They definitely are the people who run the temple. So they would control who would come in there and who could sell. You know, they, they could tell people if they wanted to, oh, no, you can't sell your goods here. They control that area, you know. So what's to say? I can't prove it, but did they get a kickback? I don't know. Yeah, they did. That was the thing. You know, to get, get your sacrifice approved, you had to go to, to, to the statue to the inspector. Mm, okay. And so they would come in with uh, their little sheet, and they would say, uh, sorry, it's not acceptable. Oh, by the way, we have a booth over here that has sheep that came just fresh from Bethlehem. And we'll give it to you at a different markup. And those were the agents for the Sadducees. So they were extremely wealthy people. And this is how one of the ways that they increased their wealth by, by defrauding the people and by uh, uh, selling them at a great market. That makes sense. I mean, I can see that happening. They have the power to do so. Yeah. That makes very well. I, I knew had a feeling it was going on, but I wasn't sure. Thank you for clearing that up for me. But that would make sense. I like kind of how you put it. Oh, yeah, you're, I'm sorry. I understand you came a long way. That sheep's not good enough. But hold on, hold on. You're in luck today. We got we got some people on, on premises that can sell that to you. As I said last week, you got to remember, the little one had like maybe 30,000, 35,000. Passover goes up to a quarter of a million people. Yes. Up on the Temple Mount, which is 13 acres now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go up there today, uh, you've got 250,000 people up there on that 13 acres. Then plus all the sheep and all the other stuff that Mixing, you can imagine what it smelled like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and just hold it like. You know, they, they got the approved, you know where they got the pen full of approved sheep from? Where's that? Taking it from the people that have not approved sheep and scooting them in the back door and around through the pen. That's how they did it. You're like, now they're approved. You sell to somebody else. I'm sorry, I'm not laughing at what you're saying, but you made me think of something. I have a friend, his daughter, for whatever reason, man, we worked with her at Sears. Uh, she converted to Islam all of a sudden. And her dad's from Texas, red blood American, all you can get. Christian, love him to death. Me and him worked together for years. But his wife, one day his daughter came home and they didn't know she had converted and she's got the full hijab and everything on. And there's this blonde-headed, blue-eyed little girl. You're like, where'd this come from, you know? It was just all of a sudden. When she came and did her interview when we worked at Sears, she didn't have that on. But when she came back on Monday to work, she had it on. So it took like everybody by surprise. So apparently they had a cook out of their house. And she told her dad, Dad, you know, we can't eat that chicken. That chicken ain't the blessed chicken. He says, not. Nah. He said, no, we brought, we, we, we brought the blessed chicken with us. He said, all right, just bring me the blessed chicken. I'll grill it, too. So he got the chicken. He grilled it up. <laughs> and he told us that, yeah, I grilled the blessed chicken. And when it was done, I couldn't tell the blessed chicken from my chicken. So they probably ate my chicken, which was a heathen chicken. And I don't know what it's going to do. 
He said, because they all look like the same chickens to me. But yeah, they would take those things and they would turn around and sell them. So this stuff is messed up. That's why he called them a den of robbers. Because they were, de they were defrauding the people very hard. And when you said 250,000, let's put that in perspective. When I used to preach down in Winchester, Tennessee in June every year, I had to ride past a venue called Bonnaroo. Bonnaroo would increase the size of uh, the city of Manchester's population by at least anywhere from 80 to 100,000 people in a cow pasture out there in, in the middle of Winchester. I can only imagine on these 13 acres, 250,000 people hustling and bustling around trying to get to their sacrifices. And, of course, the priests are sacrificing daily, almost 24 hours. I think it was 24 hours a day. They were making those sacrifices so with blood pooling up everywhere, the smell, like you said, when you start thinking about the, the, the descriptive language that you could use to get the picture of what's going on there, it's a very busy time of the year for these folks. So with all this going on here, you insert Jesus. Here he comes. Everybody's seen this entrance he just had. You know, so when we get up in there, in verse 27 of chapter 11, why wouldn't they do this? They ask him. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority do you do, or are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or human origins? Answer me. They discuss it among themselves. It says, if we say from heaven, he will say then, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origins, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That was a kind of interesting exchange right there. You know, they kind of discussed among themselves, if we say this is what he'll do, if we say this is what he'll say. So let's act like we don't know on this situation. And he knows that they do know, but right now Harden and Harden won't say because they're worried. But what are they doing right here? Can you see it? They're playing the political games of the day. Because <laughs> you see what they were worried about? Well, we have to be careful here because... There are some among us that believe John was a prophet. All through history, in the Bible, New Testament anyway, Pharisees have seen they always come with the notion of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But Jesus, knowing the motive of their heart, he always ends up with them. And I think it's hilarious. And then I guess think of myself. Yes. That's always how they come. They're going to say we don't know, but really they do know. They just don't want to say what they feel. And they're trying to de-legitimize him as the Savior, I mean, as the Messiah. Because, one of the, I mean, you and the Sadducees are going to be the resurrection of the Oh, yeah, that's right. You're very right. And we'll actually get to that here in a moment. Um, so after Jesus told him this parable, I do think it's pretty fitting that the not parable, but after he told him that this discussion, look at the parable he says next to them. You know, it's a parable of the vineyard owner. And this was a pretty intriguing parable. He began speaking the parables, and a man planted a vineyard, 
put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and he went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them. They hit him on the head and they treated him shamefully. Then he sent another. They killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read the scripture? A stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful in his eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So Jesus just told a parable and immediately struck something within them. Because it says they knew. And what basically this parable seems to me, from what I'm hearing here, is, is giving you the, basically what happened with the prophets. God would send a prophet to the people, and it was a time and a point where people accepted prophecy. But then it was another time and point where they may throw you into an empty cistern for telling the truth because it wasn't something you liked to hear. Look at what they did with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know, Jeremiah didn't say anything that people liked, especially when he stood on the steps of the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7 and lambasted everybody and basically said, you think because the temple's sitting here that you're saved. But this is not going to help you because you're not doing what the Lord asks you, what the Lord requires. You know, he just went through them like a hot knife through butter. And, you know, let's be realistic. Humans don't like to hear that stuff. It's hard when somebody tells you you're doing wrong and then prove it to be right, even when you know it's wrong. It, it, sometimes we get set in our ways, especially if our hearts are hardened. If your heart's not hardened, then it really does prick you, and you've got to find a way to change. But in this instance, these people are so entrenched, they want to kill him. Killing him would be the easiest way to shut him up. And we can shut him up quickly. Nobody else hears this message. And then nobody else will hold us accountable. we got to silence this messenger. That's their ideal. Because if you've seen in the parable, you have an issue of progressive violence. It got worse and worse and worse, even to the point now, they disrespect the owner so much that they kill his own son. Thinking that in doing this, They'll actually get what they want, which is control and ownership of this vineyard. But I've never seen a hierarchy move that way. What type of thinking was that? Let's kill his son, we'll get it. Like he's going to gift that to you. You know, and, and he makes a point. What is this owner going to do? Is he going to bring people in here and take on revenge on all of you? And then give it to somebody else? In other words, it's kind of like, what's God going to do to y'all? who sat in this temple, defrauded the people, killed the prophets, treated the people badly, led them astray. And every time he sent you somebody, you did this to them. What do you think he's going to do when he comes? 
Oh, yeah, this is scary for these men who heard this. This is upsetting. This is a reality they're beginning to understand it could be true because if it wasn't, why conspire to kill somebody? Why not just write him off as a crazy fool? A wine bibbler. It was something about Jesus. And you heard it within the questions they asked him. By whose authority do you teach? So something about his teaching and the way he's doing it has shaken the power structures of the temple. We've seen what it did with the synagogue. Now we've entered the realm of the aristocracy, the, the, the upper class of the temple, the, the religious elite, per se. You know, we're, we're not just in a realm of people, how can I say this? In my mind, which could possibly be wrong, I've always envisioned this is like this in order for me to remember who I'm dealing with. It's like when I'm dealing with the Pharisees, there are people who kind of know what's going on. Some of them are pretty well educated and others are educated by word of mouth and what they heard from these people. But when I come to the temple, these people have more money to actually go to these rabbinic schools and get those seats by the, by the chief teachers and learn. That's kind of how I think of it, even though I know people in say are very highly educated too in some cases. But right here, these guys, you have your law, you scribes, your elders, your chief priests, your high priests. You have the heart of Judaism in this temple. And who does Jesus think he is walking in here telling us this stuff? Who does this Nazarite think he is? How dare he? But what authority does he have to tell us this stuff? We got to get rid of him. He's got to go. When people seek to get rid of you because of something you said, you probably said something right and pretty accurate. You know? So what happens next? Of course, let's try to set a trap for him. So what do we need to do? Find something. Because right now, he's using our own law against us. So he knows our law. It's going to be pretty hard to trap him with that. Let's try something else. Then, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, verse 13, chapter 12, to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you're truthful and don't care, about, care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Look who they sent this time. We were talking about the Sadducees. So now it says they sent. Who's the they? Sadducees. Who'd they send? Pharisees and Herodians. Who were the people we dealt with in the first parts of Mark? <coughs> Pharisees and Herodians. Why would you think they would use these people to try to trap him right now? Any ideas? Any thoughts on that? Well, one thing. Sadducees. Who controlled Jerusalem were immensely unpopular. Uh, they were teetering on the brink of rebellion because no one liked them. People didn't like them. Now here's Jesus up there on the Temple Mount preaching. Mm -hmm. They knew that if they went uh, foremost, people said, you know, these people are nasty people. They've been cheating the people for all these years. They're 
lord it over all. But the Pharisees, we think, we think bad of Pharisees, but Pharisees were at least true to their beliefs. Mm -hmm. They stood with they, the law and everything else. And now they were self-righteous type people. But they were probably the intelligent people of the masses. Uh, to be a Pharisee would, would be the best of the best. Probably, if you think through this, uh, Saul was probably one of the leading spokesmen of the Pharisees. They, you know, uh, that kind of makes that story a little bit poignant. Mm -hmm. He's probably one of the ones that might be doing some speaking because he was second, and uh, he was an apprentice to Galileo, uh, one of the chief of. Uh, Pharisees and everything, so he would be the one that could make the argument against Jesus. But he might have been the one that could make the argument. I don't know. Good thinking. Good thinking. Very possible. It's very plausible. Because Paul was a student of Gamaliel, who was a was like a great grandson of Heliel. One of son in law, that's it. He comes from a rabbinic tradition that was really popular and powerful amongst the uh, uh, Pharisee scholars, Pharisaic scholars at the time. So he would, you're right, I think he could possibly be one of those people doing that because we'll see him come into play later. Uh, but yeah, I can, I can see it being plausible. And plus, in fact, too, up until this point, who has mostly interacted with Jesus in opposition? Herodians, Pharisees. So they kind of know what, they're gonna, what to expect. You know, when you come into the situation, it's kind of almost like you don't want a Pac-12 team to meet an SEC team at this time of the year because they just don't know what they're going to get. But you take an SEC team like LSU and put them against a Georgia, y'all saw that game yesterday. So that's what they're expecting. You know, they're going to put somebody who's familiar with him thinking maybe they've thought of something that can trap him. So what do they use? Let's look. So it says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Well, really? You're going to ask me this question right now, y'all? You're going to really ask me, should we pay or not pay? You want me to say, no, we don't pay taxes, so you can just say, I'm trying to fight everything. You know? And I think it's kind of interesting that they brought it this way. Let's try to get him in trouble with the IRS. In typical terms. Let's see if he's paying those taxes or if he's going to cause everybody else to stop paying it. Because tax payments, y'all, were a big thing back in the day. These people were heavily taxed all the way around. Okay? So... And then he would be a French Bingo. Bingo. They're trying to bring the law, the other law, into fame. They're trying to bring the Roman law into play with this. Because right now we, can, we have not been successful in trapping him with our Jewish law because he knows it. But how much does he know about these Romans? So he says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God give things that are God, God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. 
That is definitely not the answer they wanted to hear because it's as radical as this Jesus was. They were truthfully thinking he's going to probably say something off the wall like, no, you don't pay taxes. Give your money to God only. That's what they wanted to hear. But he didn't do that. You know, he, he, he didn't do that. Because they were expecting something like, they wanted something like that to say that. Well, one interesting thing, I don't know if you got a coin. Okay. One side it has Caesar's picture, and on the other side it would have some some description. Mm -hmm. Now you could not take Caesar's with your Pharisees uh, would not allow you to give a coin of Caesar to pay your Jewish tax. Adultery, right? They viewed it as adultery. That's what reason you sold the money. Change, money changed. They were bringing that Daenerys that had Caesar's picture on it, and they had to trade it in to give the temple tax. Ah, money also, changed, gotcha. you couldn't pay your taxes to Rome unless you had... Denera. Right. The exchange rate was just a little casual. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't getting one for one. They were getting money changed for charging... It, it was really uh, uh, unbalanced. So he throws it back at them. You can't give this to, to the temple, and you can't pay your taxes and your Jewish money. Life is just complicated for these people. Don't it? it sounds for me that's just too much work. <laughs> Take this quarter and be happy. No, it's got George Washington. We can't do that. What? Like one of the things is that they can't have an image of God, like you said, about idolatry. You know, so on the back of the thing it says something like that, Caesar the son of God. Yeah. You know, and so the idolatry point is is in there too. They had problems with that. He said, Worship God and give Caesar what Caesar's separated the two. Definitely. Because when you look at this, uh, don't forget that in Rome the Caesar was also deified. And part of his name, which was a mile long, it has some kind of deification of the emperor in that. Now, only a few of the nutcase emperors, like I like to call them, Nero, Domitian, actually forced that imperial worship aspect of their, of their how can I say it, their emperorship. Others didn't pay too much attention to it, but it was a facet of, our, of the emperor's identity, that he was deified. So what you have in that situation was they were trying to trap him into saying something so they could bring Rome into this argument to say, look how he's upsetting the people. And once again, like you said, they were teetering. They were worried about the people. If the people liked you, why are you worried about them? And why would you worry about the people if, they're going to have a, if they wanted to fight you? Because number one, if a riot occurs, you break Pax Romana, which then brings in legions who have to squash this rebellion. People will die. It's bad for money when people are dying, y'all. It's bad for the temple when people are dying. Because if you kill people, that's less people that can pay. You don't want dead bodies. Dead bodies can't bring money. If you upset the Pax Romana, Rome was going to kill somebody, probably their people there. We don't need this upset. So yeah, it's teetering. So look at this environment and climate we're in right now. And here is Jesus. He flipped the money changers, which is more than likely the reason why 
this question was asked. We know what he did there. It's a good way to tie that in. Yes, sir. Amen. into the next part we run into. Look at what they do next with him. I mean, this is now, we couldn't trap him with this one. Let's play a game back with the law. Let's go back into the law now. Where he goes to the, when the Sadducees, like, I think you mentioned the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. We know this. We know in Acts, Paul utilizes this disagreement to kind of divert attention from himself at one time. So right here, it says the Sadducees, and it says, who, do, who uh, say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind, no child, that man should take the wife and raise the offspring of her uh, offspring for his brother. And then he asked the question about, there were seven brothers, first married a woman, dying, left no offspring, the second took to her, he died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, none of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven <clears throat> had married her? Excuse me. It's kind of interesting that they mention this because if in mentioning this, you got to remember Genesis chapter 38, uh, 6 through 26, and Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, when you're dealing with the Leverite law. You know, before Moses said anything about it, it was already been enacted because Judah went by it. But when Judah went by it, this was a Canaanite practice. They got it from the Canaanites. Because if you all remember the story of Judah and Tamar, where Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, Salah, I think it was, like that. And Ur died because he was wicked in front of God, and God took him. Onan came into the wife, Tamar, but he despised his brother so much, the Bible says he spilled his seed on the ground. God killed him. Then the other son was too young. So they had to hold him back and wait till he came of age. But Scripture says that a long time had passed, and Judah's wife dies. Now, by the language used there, it lets us know that Judah should have given his son a long time ago, but he hadn't. So it's interesting that Judah, a man who's born and his wife died, it says something about him going up to Timnah to get shear sheep. I'm not sure what Timnah had to do with shearing sheep, but when the daughter-in-law heard it, she says, I've got to fulfill this vow, the Leverite law. So she decided, okay, since I know he's going up there to shear sheep, I don't know if the sheep shearing club was 
an extracurricular activity club or something. I don't know. But this woman went and dressed like a prostitute and went and sat on the road knowing this man was coming by. She had to know what was going on there. But anyway, they had intercourse. She got pregnant like she needed to. She got a signet ring. Later on, he called for them to burn her, and she brought the signet ring to the staff show, hey, you're the father. And he said she is more righteous than I. Had to fill that Leverite law, meaning she had to have a seed from her husband's, first husband's lineage and raise that offspring as his, in his name so his name wouldn't die. Deut- Deuteronomy 25, we see this happen again. In the second given of the law, Moses gives it to the people saying this. So here we are now, a group of people who don't even believe in resurrection are asking questions such as this, and Jesus baffles them with what he answers. You know, he goes on to say in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Jesus spoke to them and said, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. He just blew them out the water once again. He understands the the law. He's not blind to what has come before him. He's now putting it in ways that aren't like the other folks. Because notice he didn't say, well, Rabbi this said that or Rabbi that said this. He just plainly said it. He spoke with the authority of he understands what's going on and knows what's going to happen here. And he's working with the scriptures in a way they're not used to hearing. But he also used the law because the Sadducees rejected the oral tradition and the oral history. They wanted to see the picture. Right. That's why he said don't be Right. And the interesting piece about that is, like he just said, what they value, what they know. And he used it just the right way. He said, hey, hold on. Don't you know this? That's why you're mistaken. That's why you're not understanding this. And every time I read through this, I see many different forms and facets of us today in some certain ways. Of how we read scripture, how we view it, how we use it. And how we employ it on certain things. You know, I've watched people try to take the word of God and destroy people's lives with it. I've seen people try to improve people's lives with it. I've seen people try to not do anything with it. You know, and it's kind of comical how we'll read these stories and we don't see ourselves in the mirror here. In some cases, some places, we're still doing these things right here that these people were trying to do to Jesus. You know, it's kind of sad. <laughs> you know, but this is this is real. I mean, it transfers into 2019. You know, it's just stuff that's still trying to happen to people who are still trying to do God's will. And this should speak volumes to us of looking at, at what's going on here. And last but not least, and then we'll close out. 
After he gave him that, he talked about the God of the living. I, I love this part right here. It said that one of the scribes, so here we got one of the lawyers, one of the scholars, have approached him, and when he heard them debating, and he saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? And what does Jesus quote? What does he give him? The Shema. The Shema. He said, the most important is, listen, hear, O Israel, the Lord your our God is one, is one Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, there is no one else except him, and to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. This was a positive interaction with a scribe. It seems like in this moment, that scribe and Jesus were on the same playing field, on the same level of understanding. And what the scribe asked and what Jesus replied and how he responded. And I like how Jesus responded with it simply. From what I'm hearing, what you're saying, you're not far off. You're not far from where you need to be. Which is a good thing. Consider what we ran into. A little bit of a, a sermon this morning. Uh, that guy was fun. Mm -hmm. You know, all the other people. Hey, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to. <laughs> He's a spoiler alert. Go ahead. But the, the last guy was open. He was open. Mm -hmm. The other guys, they weren't open. Any answers? Right. They weren't seekers. And being a seeker, you have to be open and be able to disseminate what you're hearing. You know, point blank. I, I remember there was a time and a place that when I first started my journey into biblical studies and whatnot, when I first entered Lipscomb in 2003, I had been preaching for three years. Oh, boy. And I thought I knew everything. <laughs> Woo! Man, I think it was about the first year, after the first year, I realized, okay, I don't know nearly as what I thought I knew, and I was even, I was so humbled. I mean, it was so crazy. I'm going to tell you how bad it was, y'all, and I'm not embarrassed to admit, because God's worked me a long way. I got into an argument with a brother in the cafeteria one day, because for some reason we used to sit around and just debate for just stupid stuff, and it was like four of us, we all sitting there, all Bible majors, and we all... It was four against one, and that one said, y'all do know Luke ain't an apostle, right? How dare you say that? I'm like, hold up. You're right, he's not. <laughs> but I was, just, I was just looking for a fight, I guess. But God brought me a long way that now I've learned to listen better and appreciate what others are bringing to the conversation. That's why I like to hear what you have, because you just sharpen my edge. I love this class. Um... I can study this all day and see one thing, and you're going to see a different thing. I want to know what you see, too, to help sharpen me. I love your comments, by the way. Yours, too. And, Jeff, I like you, too. I want to know how that woman went through seven You know, I want to know what they did 